HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at factors that will shape our food world in 2019. We start with trend predictions and how media covers them. A website could theoretically devote all their coverage to these viral trends and, and get all sorts of hits. That's not a way to build sustainable readerships, just as it's not a way to build you know, sustainable restaurants. We report on a big change coming and how street meat will be served. On January 1st, a ban on plastic foam went into effect in New York City. And we round out the episode with a story about using gene editing to create the spicy tomato of the future. At first, it sounds like a, like a gimmick or like something that you would do for fun. The truth is, there is a real value behind it. It's not too late to make your resolution. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode this year. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, and I am excited to be back. It's season eight. It's 2019. We've got a huge season of The Line planned for you. Each episode, I'll sit down with one chef to talk about their career trajectory. Each chef's story in their own words about how they got here. What decisions did they make to influence this path? What opportunities did they seize? What luck did they have? What mistakes did they make? We'll talk sourcing and sustainability, staffing and stage mise en place, and missed opportunities. All of that on this episode of The Line and all season long. My guest today is Chef Jared Clark. Growing up in Texas, Chef Jared Cl- Chef Jacob Clark sorry, <laughs> grew up around the water eating crawfish, oysters, and learning the secrets of gumbo from his family in Louisiana. When he came to New York City, he wanted to pursue being a chef at the highest levels, and he's worked at some incredible establishments, including Dovetail, Acme, and most recently, Carbone. Jacob has also worked as a lobsterman to gain firsthand knowledge of seafood sourcing. In 2017, he he joined Maison Premier as the executive chef. I'm excited to talk about how he's bringing his southern culinary traditions onto the menu at Maison Premier. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Sorry about that name mix-up. I'm a little rusty. Been out of the game for a couple months. Your uh, first episode of uh, the season. Thanks for being here. Let's, let's start at the way beginning. Tell me about your grandmother. Uh, did she teach you how to make gumbo? 
Uh, my grandmother, my father, that whole side of the family, it was him and his mother. They were the, uh, they were the Cajuns. And so what's, what's the family recipe? If it's secret, you don't have to reveal the whole thing. But what really, in your opinion, in your family's opinion, makes a great gumbo? And what are the, what are the steps to that process for people that have no experience really interacting with gumbo except for, unfortunately, maybe like a Campbell's soup version of it? Right. It's really hard for me to give exact recipes for things because they never really had them. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of like they, they, they used really fresh ingredients. They made a very nice dark roux, and it was just more like technique and just kind of like sitting there all day and babying the gumbo. And, and when you say like babying the gumbo, like so you start off with a roux, it goes for several hours, and then what's the next thing that you put in? Is it like shells is it do you make a stock on the side and then add it to the roux like how does how does it actually work all right so we'll we'll break it down so first you'd be making your roux and you got to constantly be stirring this thing because Mm -hmm. if it burns then uh you know the whole thing's screwed um and at the same time you would have some kind of uh some kind of stock going so if it would be a chicken gumbo you'd have a chicken stock going uh you know seafood gumbo which is my favorite you would have you know some kind of like shellfish broth brewing at the same time so while you're stirring this is this is bubbling on the on the other hand and so when you add them together what's your family's kind of mix when you're when you're making a gumbo you're using like shellfish stock and then is what proteins are going into that uh, well, what I like to do, I like, uh, so the, the one we have at Maison Premier, and this is just the way that I like to eat at the house as well. I like andouille sausage. I like shrimp. I like uh, lots of crab meat, just like torn apart and thrown in there, like in every bite. Uh, I throw oysters in right at the end, so they just kind of like curl up a little bit and don't really cook too much. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I like to put whole crabs in there too. So do you think that gumbo, it sounds... It sounds like there's a lot of luxurious ingredients actually in there. Like, um, I guess it depends on what kind of level you're getting those various ingredients at, but there's a lot of seafood in there. And I think gumbo kind of gets this, it it has sort of a perception that it's kind of like, um, like it's more on the peasant stew side mm-hmm. than it is on like a refined, you know, stock. It's, and so Maison Premier is kind of, it is an upscale restaurant. Uh, do you do anything with your uh, version of it to kind of present it in a different way to kind of glitz it up a little bit? Or do you give people a bowl of gumbo and say like, this is the, this is what you're getting? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So we just source really nice ingredients. The shrimp we're using are, uh, you know, they're, they're not cheap getting, you know, the whole crabs. Uh, I don't go cheap on the crab meat that I throw into every portion. It's literally mm-hmm. like a handful just so that it's like very, very rich. Um, you know, and then you know, transversely on the other side, like, you know, you can get a nice bowl of gumbo in New Orleans for, for cheaper. You know, it's just using, you know, less expensive shrimp and, you know, less expensive products. Let's talk about Texas, New Orleans, Louisiana. So you grew up in Texas. Where are you from? I'm from Houston, Texas. And how did your family end up there? Uh, like, are they many generations back Texans? So most of my family comes from, my dad's side of the family comes from Baton Rouge. Uh, my mother's side comes from San Antonio, which is where I was born. Um, Houston is probably the biggest city closest to uh, Baton Rouge, just, you know, outside of outside of Louisiana. So a lot of my uh, my family just kind of migrated over there. 
And what was your childhood like growing up in Houston? Houston's a huge city. Were you in the burbs? Were you in the city? And like, do you have, do you have siblings? What was the kind of vibe like in your house? Was it besides the whole gumbo thing, which seems to be a family tradition, was it a real food intensive house? Uh, well, yeah, it was, I wouldn't say it was like a chef driven home, but you know, my father knew how to cook very well. And, uh, I got a lot of experience from him just being in the kitchen with him. I I think the first thing I cooked was scrambled eggs. I, I still remember that day as a little kid. I got them all over the place. Uh, Houston was a great place to grow up. Uh, I lived on the north side of Houston, which is uh, Spring, just outside. It was kind of the suburbs, so there was still city, but there was still lots of like cow pastures and uh, bayous and swamps and things like that that we'd run around and you know hunt and, and fish and uh, doing all that. I just went back like a couple years ago, and all that's like demolished. There's shopping centers everywhere. <laughs> There's bus systems. It's completely, completely different. Your now. old playground is now concrete and, and asphalt. Oh, uh, so sad. Uh, so growing up, you spent a lot of time outdoors. You were kind of always just running around fishing and hunting and, and that kind of lifestyle. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I hate to like further the Texas stereotype, but I think I was six years old when my father bought me my first hunting rifle, Mm -hmm. which is a little semi-automatic 22. And I was just run around and give all the rabbits hell. It was crazy. Uh, and, (laughs) and so do you think that any of the hunting and fishing you did is there a direct correlation between that and sort of your later love of food and how you got into it or do you think those are just kind of separate like that was your childhood and then later you (coughs) became interested in food no absolutely so you know my father uh was an avid hunter and so was his father and uh all his brothers and so we would all meet and go go hunting and i remember you know the first time i i shot a deer he taught me how to field dress it out in the in the wild so I could, you know, uh, field dressing would be to cut the stomach and take out the insides mm-hmm. just so it would be lighter to carry. And, uh, you know, I just remember doing that at like like six years old and, you know, just killing and, and, and butchering and, you know, actually like like taking the life of something, which, which sounds very sad, but you get, you get a bigger respect for the food that you're, you're getting. I feel like a lot of people nowadays just get things in a package. So that's how they think things are wrapped. And that's it, you know, your piece of salmon. That's what you get, you know, you don't know about the life of the fish, where it came from, and, uh, you know, how, how it looked, you know, coming out of the ocean. And I, I feel like, you know, doing that myself, and catching and hunting uh, a lot of my own food definitely gave me a higher respect for the, the ingredients that I use. Do you remember a lot of applications that you use? So you shoot a deer... It's a huge animal. Mm-hmm. Do you, w- did your dad take it back? Would he butcher it? And would you make, would, would you give different cuts away? Did you throw it all in the freezer, make sausage? Like, what would you do with all that meat? Well, first of all, we would take the pelt and we would do something with that and the horns, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but for the most part, we didn't have the facilities to be butchering and, and doing all this stuff ourselves. So we, we had a guy and uh, we would just tell him what we wanted. He would make sausage, backstrap. Um, all sorts of things from it. I just, my dad had this freezer in the garage and this thing was just always just full of meat. And so like, you know, like chicken fried venison was like on the, on the menu probably once or twice a week. And that's just a piece of venison pounded out, uh-huh. breaded and fried. Is that right? Yes. What it is? Smothered with, uh, with, with gravy, which is, you know, I guess you'd call a bechamel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, a real Texas treat. Uh, how did you get, 
really truly involved in the culinary world? Was there a first job for you that that put you down that path? Like what exactly made something click on for you and say to you, I think this might be something that I want to pursue? Well, <clears throat> it's kind of interesting. My my career before uh, before moving up to New York and, and becoming a chef, uh, I used to be a uh, kind of a music producer and, and DJ. I was uh, real involved in the house music scene down in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would do that a lot, and I, I couldn't hold like a normal job because I was up till all hours of the night, uh, you know, partying, going crazy. Um, so I, I went to culinary school down there, and I got a job at a... Uh, a little Cajun restaurant called the Evangeline Cafe in a, in a strip mall, and it's still there. I still talk to uh, I still talk to the chef. He wears camo to work every day. He's got this huge mustache that twirls over. Curtis Clark, this guy's amazing. Um, but that's that's where I learned to cook gumbo like professionally in a mm-hmm. kitchen, um, actually using recipes and stuff. And then uh, I guess you know, I just got tired of things down there. Uh, the, the hectic lifestyle was was just too much for me. So uh, I had some friends up here, and they were like, "Well, if you want to pursue cooking, you can come stay on our couch, and I'll I'll help you find a job." And so I, I did that. And she, uh, uh, her name's Sarah Ashley. She helped me get a job at uh, Eleven Madison Park, and this was the first. Uh, just dove right in there to the New York City scene. Oh You're God. like, I guess I'll go from being a DJ to working at Eleven Madison Park. That sounds like but a. I knew nothing. <laughs> I knew nothing. Like like my training and whatever I went to school, uh, nothing prepared me for that. And this was the first like few months that Daniel Hum had taken over. Um, so they were really pushing to change the place and pushing for uh, perfection. And uh, I remember I got there and I, I I just I thought I had arrived. Like I'm here. I'm in New York. I'm a chef now. And uh, they just really taught me otherwise. <laughs> it was a very, very humbling moment. I, I literally had no idea what I was doing, and I held on for dear life. And uh, I think this is this is probably one of the most pinnacle moments in my career because you know I, I came in thinking I was I was a hot shot and I knew what I was doing, and then I got completely humbled. The executive sous chef at the time, his name was Jason Franny, and I want to search this guy out because this is I, I want to thank him for uh, giving me this lesson. He hired me because I worked at a country club in Texas in a small little city that he was born in. And he knew I didn't have any experience, so he gave me the chance. It was a bad move on his part. <laughs> I just screwed up everything. But, uh, you know, after a few months, I, they let me go. And that was my moment. I was like, oh, my God, I got to step it up. I don't know what I'm doing. This is like... This is this is what I need to be doing, and uh, you know, just being there and getting like the discipline, and being you know, evacuated from there, um, really, really humbled me and taught me that I need to like keep my head down and focus and just just learn. Do you remember specifics of being at Eleven Madison Park where you were picking up something from someone on the line, or you learned a new? prep task or something like that and just thinking to yourself like this is this is exactly where I want to be like day one were you like I'm in the right spot New York is for me or was it a was it a real rocky experience as you're going in and kind of it seems like you had a lot of stumbles over those couple months so like was your energy and your enthusiasm still high even as you were getting kind of beaten down by the day-to-day absolutely that's that's what i came for i wanted discipline because i didn't i didn't have any and just going there and seeing how 
aligned everything was, how perfect, uh, how quiet the place was, how focused everybody was. It really, really appealed to me. And I was like, like, wow, this, this, is, this is what I want to do. There's something about a place that's striving for perfection that that tends to rub off on people no matter how long they stay, right? You mm-hmm. could have staged there for two days, right. but you were there for a couple months and you're still thinking about it mm-hmm. all the time. Do you think that has to do a lot with uh, just specifically Daniel Hum's vision for the place and how he implemented it right away? Or do you think that that's just how Michelin style kitchens run? Like, do you think it's the chef's personality or do you think it's the style of the restaurant that leans so heavily on their cooks so that they remember it years later? I think it's a blend between the two. Mm -hmm. The place is an institution and it kind of grows with the chef and with all the chefs that work there and, and the staff, um, you know, just, just, just the discipline of the cooks. It, it's hard to create that culture um, to people that haven't seen that before. You know, that level of discipline and uh, organization. Um, yeah, it was it was it was truly interesting to be there. I I, I definitely uh, learned a lot about. I'm sorry, learned a lot about uh, how to organize myself. And when you did get evacuated from there, <laughs> where was your next move? What did you think? Uh, you might want to do next and how did you end up pursuing that? <clears throat> so it was really interesting. I would, there's a bar across the street from 11 Madison Park called Live Bait. I think it may not be there anymore. Um, but there was a guy sitting at the bar and uh, I was sitting there and I kind of looked like I had a rough day. And um, he says, oh, you know, you, you look like you're a cook. I think he saw the burns on my arm or something. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you know, and I started talking to him and uh, his name is Jason Lawless. He was the executive sous chef at Cafe Grey, and he was meeting somebody that was getting off of work from uh, 11 Madison Park. So we started chatting. We got along really good. He used to live in Austin, so we were both Texans, and uh, you know we uh, we related on that. And uh, he's like, "Well, you know, you know, if you know things aren't working out for you over there, you can." He gave me his card. He's like, "You can always call me. We're going to be opening up something something new. I got this really good chef, Gray Coons." Um, I had never heard of him, you know, of course. I didn't know <laughs> anything about New York. I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. And then when uh, when the 11th Madison Park thing was over, I gave him a call, and he was like, yeah, yeah, come on. And um, I just remember how welcoming they were to me and how willing they were to, like, get in there and, like, like really teach me and help me grow. At Cafe Gray? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, including Gray Coons. Like, I got to work with him a lot, and, uh, you know, he was like – He's like Yoda. He's just had this like aura of like doing everything, you know, amazing. And it was just like a really cool experience just to be around him a lot. I feel like that that was probably one of the best restaurants I worked at. I wish I could go back and do it again. You know, Um, I feel like I really learned how to cook there. What do you mean by that? Uh, Just like everything. Just. just, I mean, like like working on cooking at home is a lot different than working on a line. Mm hmm. All right, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of screaming. You have to be fast. You have to do the same motions every time. Uh, it's just it's it's got to be streamlined. And I, I really figured out how to work more for the kitchen as as a, a machine to be like a gear in the machine, rather than you know here I am just you know dun, 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 you know just cooking, flailing my arms around. And so, how long were you at uh, Cafe Gray for? Uh, I think about a, a year. Um, I would have stayed for a very long time, but unfortunately, it uh, it, it closed down. Mm-hmm. 
And so <clears throat> what was the next spot on the journey in New York after Cafe Grey? <laughs> well, so Greg Coons is a pretty awesome guy. He, uh, he helped find almost everybody jobs. Um, his son had gone to this little island off the coast of Maine uh, in the summers and worked at this little restaurant called the Islesford Dock Restaurant. And um, so he recommended that I give these people a call and, uh, and go out there since the summer was coming up. So I took his advice and uh, went out there and worked at this, this amazing little restaurant on uh, Little Cranberry Island, just, uh, just west of Nova Scotia, actually. And um, it was amazing. Uh, it's, it's, it's a home of mine now. I, I go back as, as much as I can. Um, so I would work at the little restaurant uh, on a dock over the water, literally right next to the lobster co-op. So if I needed lobsters, I'd just walk out the dock and it'd be like, Yo, Mark. And he'd be like, hey. I'd be like, I need 20. He was like, all right. And he'd push him over in the water to me. So they never actually left the water. They Amazing. Just, they just stayed in there, yeah, until they were time to, uh, until they were time to cook. Uh, yeah, and so I would do that. And then um, when the, the summer ended and the season ended, I was already friends with the families that lived out there. It was all lobster fishing uh, families, and I made a lot of friends. And so I was always offered to go on lobster boats and work as a sternman. And uh, so, yeah, I would do that, and I would just stick around until, like... What's know, a sternman? A sternman means you work on the back of the boat. Okay. And you... you Are you hauling up pots? You're, you're hauling up the, the yeah. Okay. The traps. Um, it's a dirty job. You are just covered in uh, rotten fish, because <laughs> the rotten fish permeates through the water, so that's what, that's what the lobsters want to eat, because they're bottom feeders. And so you're, you're pulling these traps up, you're pulling lobsters out of them, the boat's rocking. Uh, you're stuffing dirty, nasty fish into these traps again. You get it back in the water real quick. You get another one, and you're just moving. It's it's like working a station in a restaurant, but a little a little more uh, aggressive. Is, is it uh, dangerous? Like, is there? I mean, you hear <clears throat> things about being a fisherman and how physical it is, and being a lobsterman. Did you did you feel like? What, what am I? What am I doing? How did I end up on this little island in Maine, like stuffing rotten fish into? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I, I wanted it. I wanted a challenge. I'm a little bit of a sucker for abuse. Uh, plus, I get seasick very easily. <laughs> Sounds like a perfect job. So I would. I would have some. Uh, I would have some really horrible days. Um, but for the most part, no. It's, it's really not. The, I mean, it, if you're going to work on the ocean, you have to treat it with respect because you could fall in. Anything could happen. But we weren't. It wasn't like deadliest catch. We're out there like pulling these huge like car-sized traps out, and mm. you know the the icy ocean. For the, for the most part, we would just go out like several miles and, and pick up our traps. And uh, we would never go out if, if it was if it was dangerous to go out. And most of the time, if it was just beautiful, being on the ocean every morning is like really something to really something to do. And so you did that more than once, right? You, uh, you went out there. Again, yeah, right? a couple of seasons, yeah. And so you were kind of hooked on it, right? I really loved it, yeah. So you were were you floating back and forth between New York, and then you'd go out there and work on a lobster boat for the season? Is that kind of what you you were doing? Well, yeah, I would stay here and um, and I would work and I would I would work at a place, and then after like a couple of years, you know, you, you get kind of like burnt out, and you're just you're just tired, and it's just been like a day day to day grind, and you know what? I want I want to go to Maine. Got the Maine itch. I just I just want to go get away for a while. Vacation land. You yeah. gotta gotta pop out there and work on a lobster boat and get your head straight again. It, it was important, and then I came back and I was refreshed, and I was just like really hungry to get back into, you know, some hardcore dining again. You've worked at a lot of places that are on the 
high-end spectrum uh, with intricate plating. You've worked um, with John Frazier. You worked at Acme. You put in some time at EMP, Cafe Gray. A lot of places with high-level intensity. Um, Extreme focus necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you that guy or... Are you not that guy and you like being in those type of situations? Well, I wasn't that guy. I trained myself to be that guy. Um, it's, you know, I don't think anybody is really that person. Mm-hmm. It just takes takes years of just doing it over and over and over again. It's like anything, you know, getting getting good at something. What does that author say? It takes 10,000 hours to get yeah, something good at like something. That. Yeah, I think it might take more to get good at cooking. If possible, is there one person in New York that you can really zero in on and say like they were the strongest mentor to you or you took the most away from them from a leadership perspective? Now you're the guy in charge that people are looking to. Mm -hmm. Is there someone that you either think back on a lot? Do you hear someone in your ears? Often, I hear a lot of voices in my ears. Like anytime I'm plating something, it's like you know I just hear screaming and yelling, and it's it's. There's been a lot of mentors. I would say like the people that had the most effect on me earlier on uh, in my career, the people that helped mold me, were the people that got really mad at me and took the time to yell at me and made sure that I did things the right way and didn't let me cut corners when I tried to or find an easy way. Um, so. Uh, Jason Lawless, again, the guy that uh, that took me into Cafe Gray, he, he mentored me and he's given me several jobs since then and really helped me focus on things. Also, a guy named Matt DeLiso was also working with me at, uh, at uh, Cafe Gray um, as well. He's now the executive chef at the Hoxton. Um, we're still very close friends, but he was, he, oh God, this guy would just run me ragged and I, and I hated him for it, but I also loved him for it. And, you know, to this day, I, I can still, you know, I still think about the the things he yelled at me for, and I it, it definitely made me a better cook. You are a glutton for punishment, <laughs> it sounds like. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, more right here on the line. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Together we host The Speakeasy, a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and home brewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Fall 
Welcome back to the line here on Heritage Radio. We're sitting down with Chef Jacob Clark. He is the executive chef of Maison Premier in Williamsburg. Uh, we were talking about some of the earlier places that you worked in the first half of the show, and of course, going out to Maine, uh, getting really in touch with the seafood by, uh, by being a lobsterman and being out on the water. Even though you're seasick, I have no idea how you <laughs> did that every single day. That sounds totally totally miserable, but uh, I applaud your uh, your diligence in really getting out there and doing it year after year. So in 2017, uh, you came over to uh, Maison Premier. It is uh, already for many years been in a well-established uh, location that's pretty busy, mm-hmm. uh, especially for uh, <clears throat> people may know it for its $1 oysters, but it's also been uh, always a fully functional sit-down restaurant where you could come for dinner, mm. and it's won a lot of cocktail awards as well. Right. Um, my first question is, was there any apprehension from you coming into a place that is really well-known as a cocktail establishment and trying to establish yourself in a spot that people might not be coming for the food first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Is that more pressure or does that alleviate any pressure? It alleviated the pressure because it was already there. The bones were there and it's such a nice place. The Josh Boise and Christoph Ziska, the owners did such an amazing job designing that place. It's like a museum. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And it's a really awesome place to drink. Um, a place that I had frequented many times before. It's a mm-hmm. great hangout. Um, I just thought like it's it was just already there. Like why not just add to it? You know, it wasn't it wasn't a difficult transition at all and it was it was very well received. The the room actually is uh, captivating. I I don't really know how to describe it except that it looks totally unlike anything that I'd ever <laughs> seen in New York. It looks like you're on a movie set. Mm-hmm. Like they've done such a good meticulous job. Um how would you say that uh, transitioning from someone who had gone there as a customer to uh, to being the chef, like how does the orientation of the space influence like what you intended to do there? Like it's such a beautiful room. Did you did you think to yourself, I kind of want to do X with the plating? Do I want? Did you want to go in a specific direction dictated by the room and the cocktails, or did you want to switch things up a little bit when you came in? Well. <clears throat> I just I just wanted to give the place the food that I felt uh, fit um, the space. I, I felt like they had never had it before, and I was there a lot of times. It, the oysters are fantastic. The, it, it's amazing what, what what kind of things they can bring in. But being there, I, I was just like, man, like gumbo. Like, <laughs> where's the gumbo? Like, you should have an etouffee here. Why can't we get a muffaletta here? You know, this is like the things that they need to have, and. Uh, I was actually, I had a really good job lined up, and then a friend of mine told me that they were looking for a chef, and I was like, oh, great, this is a cool opportunity for me to share uh, things that, you know, a lot of people up here don't get to experience. Um, so really, you know, it was it was just a cool opportunity for me to just give to people. I, I, I Living up here since, I guess, 2007, I'd never really found a good place to eat gumbo, so I was, like, kind of homesick. Yeah. And this place made me feel comfortable, and it made me feel like I was home just being in that room, except for the fact that we didn't have the gumbo and, like, all these things, and so I just really wanted to, like, 
round it out and just bring everything together for uh, for the guests. So you really brought some of that that Cajun style into a place that you felt like it already had kind of New Orleans like running through mm. its veins, right. but you kind of amped it up a, a little bit. I feel um, like that was the only thing that was missing. And so uh, when you look at menu construction and you think to yourself like I can pretty much do anything but there are some constraints based on the facts of what the restaurant's like what what people expect Mm -hmm. when they come in is there anything currently on the menu that you said it doesn't fit but it's great so I'm putting it on (laughs) there or does everything kind of fall in this um, seafood Cajun style realm well I mean I think you have to tell a narrative Mm -hmm. um I think I used to work for Mario Carbone. When I when I worked for him, he was telling me when we were designing, you know, coming up with new dishes. It's like, listen, when people come into your restaurant, they're they're coming into your movie. They're in your script, and anything that pulls them out of it, then it it, it takes them out of out of the realm that you created for them. It it pulls them out of the narrative, and uh, you know that's just distractions. So you have to you have to stick to the narrative. And what he said, you know, if if any dish that we're doing and my grandmother wouldn't recognize it, then it probably won't fit with our narrative. And I, I kind of keep that in mind as well when designing dishes and, and food for Maison. It's got to be, it's got to, it's got to stay with the story. I want to ask you about sourcing and specifically fish, which is really complicated for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And they, it's it's almost like wine. People feel very nervous to ask <laughs> questions because they don't want to look stupid and they are unsure about uh, how to go about acquiring that information. So as someone who brings in quite a bit of seafood to their mm-hmm. restaurant, uh, how do you do it? What, what do you guys look for when you're talking about specific types of fish, mm. seasonality, if that plays into it? And um, what would you recommend to someone who... Uh, is trying to maybe eat more responsibly at home and lives in in Brooklyn or or a big city where they would have access to a lot of mm-hmm. different avenues. How would you recommend they go about getting their fish? Getting their fish, you know what? I've just used purveyors for so long. I mean, you know, back home we would have you know you could you could drive to the beach and fishermen would be there with a cooler full of fish, yeah, and you could just pick through it. Um, that was that was a luxury. Uh, I don't really know as far as like like sourcing things outside of my uh, my fishermen and purveyors. I can't tell you this though. Uh, all the oysters we get, we know the farmers uh, personally. Every single one of them, all mm-hmm. over the United States, the West Coast, the East Coast, uh, everywhere. And uh, so we talk to them. We talk about seasonality. Oysters have a season as well. Like in so- certain seasons, they could be less meat, less, uh, the shells are brittle. And then, you know, maybe in the summertime, they're just like, wow, this is, this is, you know, what we need to have. And so we go directly to these people, we talk to them, we develop relationships with them. And so they're always keeping us in the, in the know about what's happening, what's coming up. Hey, listen, we, we have these cool muscles that you've never, you've probably never seen before. Do you, you want to try them? We're like, yeah, we're always getting like, cool new things you know bay scouts from Baconic bay that season just ended but i think it was like a month-long season but they're like the sweetest juiciest little little scallops you ever had um i would say you know just like it's it's just like it's like talking to your farmers or something like that you just need to know um them and know what they're doing and uh you know they'll probably give you insights on on what's what's happening 
And so on the fish front, do you just have a couple trusted purveyors and you say to them, I'm thinking about a new entree, fish mm. dish, what have you got coming in? Or do you work backwards? Do you say, I need Bronzino? Is that something that you can get me? And do you feel confident that you can get consistently great Bronzino? Like, which direction does it go in? <clears throat> well, yeah, so it has to be consistent. Um, there are certain fish with a lot of, uh, a lot of like, crazy uh legalities to their seasons like like you know striped bass is one of my favorite fish it's really hard to get right now mm-hmm. um because of limitations um so yeah so that dish for oh you're talking about overfishing limitations? i think so yeah, yeah that's, okay that's what it is and um you know so that dish had to come off and we had to put something else on um you know it's the same thing like the mechanic base scallops. i was like one month we just ran them and everyone loved them and then uh you know it's it's gone again so you know i i, I guess i base the dishes around the what what's available in in the product when you're thinking about the customer coming in to um your restaurant are you trying to build a menu that can be both snackable and also built into a an overall meal mm. or do you find <laughs> that most of your customers are really I guess what I'm asking is, what's the breakdown of people that are drinking and snacking, and how many people are you trying to build a dining dinner style experience for them? And is that the same thing when you're building out a menu? Right. So it is a bar. Um, the first half of the building it is a bar. It's a big horseshoe bar. It's beautiful. There's not a lot of room for uh, for plates on there, so you can snack. So I, I like to give a lot of like quick and easy things. Just to, I mean, when I'm drinking, I want to, you know, I want small bites and things like that i think i prefer to eat just like a ton of small little plates rather than like going for one big plate but the uh the back half of the restaurant there's uh you know very large tables and you know you can sit down you can have uh, a nice big plate of food nice bowl of gumbo which you can also get the bar as well but you know you can get a couple oysters or like you can we go over the top we'll do like four tier plateaus just like seafood just fallen off of it so i mean you can like really overdo it or you can come in you can just have a few it's insane about those oysters so is there a point where you're just say to yourself like i can't look at another oyster (laughs) i can't shuck another oyster i can't eat another oyster like have you over the last year and a half that you've been there has there been any period where you just say to yourself like I'm just a little oystered, seafooded out. <laughs> oystered out. That hasn't happened yet. The oysters really pique my interest. And like like I said, the seasonality. So it's always changing what we have there. It's completely like one week we'll have something. Next week it'll be gone. Something new will be on there. So it's just like a, this constant progression. We're also taking notes on all these oysters as well and, and rating them. Um, and we know how they are at certain times of the year. We're making this compendium of just oyster knowledge, um, and we we look back at these cool. at these records and we say, you know what, these were awesome last March, and so like this like you know curiosity, I think just just keeps pushing us us forward, um, you know, and I just you don't really get tired of it because oysters are pretty awesome. 
Do you have a favorite setup? Is there a, a mignonette or a style in the way that you like to eat them? <laughs> do you go uh, one naked, one dress? Like, how do you how do you do it? <laughs> I, I, you know, this might sound uh, cheesy, but I am a sucker for uh, cocktail sauce. Okay. I, I love cocktail sauce. Awesome. Like, just slab it over everything, you know. Same thing with like ranch dressing for me. It's just, <laughs> it's so good. It's, you know, it's like a Texas thing. I'm never going to, I'll never get over. So, so, I mean, I feel like sometimes always just just the vehicle for the cocktail sauce. Are you the type of guy who like when you eat pizza or a sandwich, you have a bowl of ranch dressing to dip your sandwich and your pizza in? Is that your go to? Have you been to my house? Yeah. No. It's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're describing me on my couch. <laughs> um, so I, I want to um, ask you about other spots uh in new york that excite you you're you've been in the the sort of the higher end game for a really long time i'm always really curious about uh where you're trying where you're exploring if you get a day off is there somewhere that you love to go or is there somewhere new that you've discovered in new york you've been here for a really long time what's your kind of go-to on a day off Ooh, uh, go-tos. I don't have a lot of them because I don't have a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So my time off, I'm usually checking out new places. Uh, I just recently started going to like some of like the old uh, New York establishments. I, I feel really guilty. I've been in New York for like you know 12 years, almost 13 years, and I'd never gone to John George. It's mm -hmm. like, what am I doing? Like I'm checking out all these new places, and I'm not going to the to the to the staples. And so I went there a couple weeks ago, and that was like really awesome. Went for lunch and like. They they crushed it for lunch. It was, it was probably the best lunch I had ever had in my life. Uh, as far as like local places uh, in the neighborhood in Williamsburg, Sunday in Brooklyn is one of my favorite places. It's good friends of mine, and it's just they just make a do a really good job of, of making everyone comfortable there. Now that you're kind of settled in um, at Maison Premier, you've been there for for a little while. Do you feel kind of like you have your legs underneath you? Do, does every day feel like a totally new challenge that you couldn't expect and that you didn't see it coming or, or do you feel like you've got a handle on things there? Well, you, you know, after, after some time you get some repetition after, and, and like seeing the seasons change and being with the restaurant and you know, the ebbs and flows of the place. Uh, the second run around is, is generally easier because you know what to expect. And, and now we're in a, we're in a realm in New York where uh, minimum wage just went up mm. and um, there's been always been difficulty with staffing in New York at mm -hmm. every single level. Uh, you have a higher price point. Maybe the minimum wage doesn't necessarily affect you as much. But what are some of the mm. issues as the chef, as the leader of, of the kitchen, um, <coughs> of the forward facing member of the restaurant that um, – that you you're dealing with people are always interested in in hearing about some of the harder aspects of the job and then how you might handle them and and deal with that mm -hmm. right so yeah the minimum wage just went up to fifteen dollars um you know it's, it's good for people it's it's very difficult for restaurants um because literally everybody that was making under that um got a got a raise dollar two dollar it all went up to fifteen um, when that happens, then everybody else in the restaurant that was previously making fifteen now they don't want to make as much money as let's say the the porter or uh, you know dishwasher or something like that. So everybody starts asking for more money, and it's like, guys, we're going to go out of business. Like, we can't, we can't just you know. 
very very challenging to get every single person a raise at the exact same time. Very challenging. <laughs> and as much as I want to pay everybody uh, a lot more money, and you know, a lot of times they're worth it. It's just you know not. It's going to run the restaurant into the ground. Um, so I guess this is something that all restaurants are dealing with right now, and we're all figuring out because it's it's kind of new. I mean, I, th- I think there's going to be an inflation in prices at some point, um, just all across the board for for all restaurants, so that they can uh, they can survive. There's there's a lot of things about running a restaurant that. You can you can be at, at a restaurant in a very high position. You could be the executive sous chef, but like once you get into your position, you see a lot more things. You're you're responsible for a lot more. Um, when you uh, started at at Maison Premier, did anything catch you off guard? And did you have to call Lawless or one of your buddies or something and be like? wow, this is not something that I really expected was going to be part of my day-to-day responsibility. Like, I guess for me, it sometimes feels like it's like a never-ending battle of a to-do list that mm. never, ever gets done, right. you know? Um, anything like that for, for you? Uh, like calling lifelines to, you know, I, my lifelines are usually just like asking for recipes from my guys <laughs> or like, hey, man, you got you to gotta cook. I'm like... <laughs> I'm really weeded out right here. Please, I need a please, cook tonight. <laughs> please send me somebody. Yeah. I'm begging you. It's it's always um that's always the challenge, right? Is like finding good bodies uh and and getting them to stay. Have you found um a good strategy to motivate people and not have constant turnover? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it it's kind of hard when you're working outside of like the Michelin realm mm-hmm. because People are banging down your door to get into your Michelin restaurant. They'll work for free for you, you know, just to just to get in, just like I I did, um, you know. So you're outside of that, and so now this this kind of culture of of young cooks, they're just they're chasing a, a like a buck more, like how much will this guy give me? They they can find a buck more, they'll they'll kind of go somewhere else, and they're they're they don't want to put in the time and the effort and uh, and get kind of like put through the meat grinder, which is what I I wanted in a lot of you know chefs um they want they want that they want that that discipline they just want to get get stronger you know working in a kitchen is like it's like lifting weights the harder the heavier the weights the stronger you're going to be and um a lot of people don't want that and they just want a, an easy job and uh they want to make more money and and work less and uh you know that's that's just not what it's about it's about sacrifice and uh and kind of giving yourself to your craft and uh humbling and, and learning from the people around you so in, in that aspect, it's been really difficult. Um, but, you know, it's like my, one of my sous chefs says, it's like uh, you throw a bunch of spaghetti on the wall and you see what sticks. And uh, so you go through like, you know, some, some, some bad or poisonous people and then you find some real gems and then and these guys stick with you, uh, you know, for a long time because they share the same, same views that you have and they, they want to be, be chefs. You mentioned that. If you're in the Michelin system, it's a lot easier to attract talent. Is that um, a career aspiration for you? Do you do you think that one day you want to? Are you chasing two two three stars? I mean, I would love that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm humble enough to know maybe I probably won't ever achieve that. But yeah, I would I would really love that. I, I really really love the environment. I love that everybody around you that's their career and that's what they want to do, and they're pushing to not just do better there, but like 
do better at the next place and the next place. You're just, you know, driven towards excellence. Um, and then when you kind of go down to like casual dining a little bit, sometimes that, that level kind of goes down. So sometimes people are there, you know, like you'll have front of the house people. They're really an actor, but, you know, they're they're here for this, you know, and it is it, it's a difference between people that are striving to become something else than people that are, you know, kind of there just just to get by or get a paycheck. So it becomes a little difficult. Well, we'll close out with this hypothetical, which is you get a blank check. You can open up your dream of your <laughs> restaurant uh, anywhere, any style serves anything. Mm-hmm. What might that look like? I would like, uh, yeah, I would like to take uh, Cajun food, more fine dining and, uh, you know, possibly tasting menu and uh, just constantly bringing in, like, new and, and various seafoods from around the world or, you know, or local, but Cajun flavors and, um, you know, very high level and technique driven. I, I think that would be amazing. And where do you put it? I don't know. Pro- Brooklyn. In Brooklyn? I would stay in Brooklyn, yeah. Tell everybody where they can find you, uh, address and uh, days of the restaurant when it's open. Uh, Maison Premier is open every day. I am over at Sauvage as well, and Sauvage is open every day too, and that's in Greenpoint. And uh, just drop the address for Maison Premier for everybody. 298 Bedford. Cool. Well, that's where they can find you. Go on over there and taste all the wonderful food that they're putting out at both locations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Eli. Telling us a little bit about your story. Everyone, thanks for listening. You can find uh, more episodes of The Line online, wherever you get your podcasts, and join us every Tuesday for new episodes at 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.